Western medicine has a lot of good things about it, but it's a way of looking at the world that is very limited and limiting. And it is not the same underlying way of thinking about the world and about your patients as Chinese medicine. And I just see that that Chinese medicine ability to analyze a patient and what's going on in the patient is lost. And it has to do with a lot of recent history. It has to do with misunderstandings of what Chinese medicine really is. And it has to do with the fact that the transmission of Chinese medicine has become institutionalized in a way that a kind of higher level transmission is not possible. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Our wounds don't go away, and even if we heal them, they fundamentally stay with us. They don't disappear, and that is helpful, as it can allow us to work with our patients in ways that are deeply connective and inviting of transformative change. It's no accident that the mythic Chiron and and our typical image of the healer carries a wound. Our wounding and troubles are often the very thing that draws us to the work of medicine. More often than not, it's our own wounding that drives us to take an active hand in healing. This is why those learning the healing arts often have so much trouble, conflict, and difficulty in the learning process. At the same time as we're learning about medicine and how to use it, we are being asked to engage in our own process of self-restoration and transformation. Healing is rarely a calm, rational process. More likely, it includes parts that have been hidden away, perhaps for decades, and then there are the aspects of ourselves who we think are strong and will carry us through, but it turns out they lead to one familiar roadblock after another. Most of the wounds we carry are unconscious, and they're unconscious for a good reason, and it's not because we're flawed people but more that at the time of the trauma, we didn't have the capacity to handle the situation. And yet, a part of us that knows knew to hide it away so that we could get on with surviving in the world. And so we constellate a personality, engage protective habits, craft effective defenses, and then wonder why the world again and again seems to turn a little bit out of true. Our wounds grow us into protective stances that, on one hand, defend and protect, but on another, they freeze the original wounding and we don't quite heal. We have a level of vigilance and reactivity that often shows up in our hatreds, dislikes, fears, and anxieties. When leaning on anger and righteousness as fuel then you're likely working out of the unhealed wound. When working with compassion, empathy, and equanimity, then you're working from the generative aspect of the wound. Our wounds are not problems to be gotten rid of. They are resources that allow for a stable presence in the fire of suffering. But they take some work. It takes time, courage, and a steady persistence to transform the weakness of reactivity into the reliable ally of steadfast neutrality. While the title of this podcast suggests that we're going to talk about philosophy, really what we're touching on here are worldviews 
and belief systems, which is a topic way bigger than any one hour-long conversation. But I hope that you'll find spending this hour with Brenda Hood will give you a wider perspective on Chinese medicine, its place in the modern world, and a glimpse through your own structures that might limit the possibilities that this curious medicine we practice has to offer. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine, and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. 
you can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up in available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. I always enjoy when a conversation leaves me with more questions than answers. If that is also your cup of tea, then I think you're going to enjoy this discussion. Let's get into it. Brenda Hood, welcome back to Geological. Thank you very much. So here we are. I'm in St. Louis, Missouri, or up there somewhere in Canada, thanks to the amazing power of the internet. It's as if we're in each other's living room. And the last time we had a conversation, we were in the living room. We were in Portland. In Portland, in somebody else's living room, but we were using it for some conversations. It was really fun. Chi Anatomy is what we talked about. Great conversation. Today, we're here to talk about car repair. <laughs> of course we are. Uh, car repair would be so much easier than the topic we're about to get into, and I think car repair is difficult. Today, we decided that we wanted to noodle on Eastern and Western philosophy in the future of Chinese medicine. It's a topic I've given a lot of thought to. When I studied in China, I wound up coming away with three degrees. I have a PhD in Taoist philosophy, and then I got a postdoctorate in Chinese medicine. But the thesis that I wrote for my postdoctorate was a comparison of Eastern and Western philosophy and the future of Chinese medicine. So you have been working on this a while. I have been working on it a while. That, that thesis was written in 2010. Okay. So I'd love to get your thoughts from 2010, and we'll get through this over the time that we're talking here. I'd love to get your thoughts from like 2010, if you can remember that, and how they've changed. I can remember some of it. The most salient thought that I remember was that at the time, I was very negative about the future of Chinese medicine and the way that I saw it progressing at the time in China, where I did the, P the postdoc thesis in the Guangzhou University of Chinese Medicine under the auspices of Deng Tiatao. And I just saw what was going on in the schools of TCM, these major schools of TCM, where students who are graduating out of TCM universities and colleges in mainland China, the, the hospitals wouldn't hire them. And the reason for that was they couldn't do either Western medicine or Chinese medicine because it was just overload. And that the only people who were able to really go on and have successful practices were individuals who had family histories of Chinese medicine. Then they learned from a relative through their own family lineage or had been working with somebody in the field of Chinese medicine. So they were getting more than just what was being taught in the universities. I remember I started studying Chinese medicine in Beijing in 1993. And I was using the same textbooks as the Chinese students, all in Chinese. And I just remember gagging 
when I got to the section on yin yang, where their description of yin yang was that it was simple dialectical materialism, which if you know anything about Marxist theory, that's straight up Marxist theory, mm-hmm. where you have a thesis, an antithesis, so two opposite ideas, and then you have a synthesis, which then at a higher level brings those two together. And that's maybe part of what yin-yang theory is, but it's not really yin-yang theory at all. That's not what it's saying. And so if you're going into Chinese medicine and you've got this strong background of teaching people how to view it through the lens of Marxist theory, and in particular how to view it through the lens of Western medicine, all of a sudden you're not doing Chinese medicine anymore. And so my thesis was partly on the failure of Chinese medicine education in China at the time, and the failure of the integration of Chinese and Western medicine. Because what's happened with that is that Chinese medicine has then come under the umbrella of Western medicine, and things are often defined based on Western medicine. And then you have these Chinese medicine tricks or techniques that maybe can help with that. And so things are no longer defined based on the underlying epistemology, ontology of Chinese medicine and how that understands the world. And you see that same problem being replicated in the West. Because when I read the case studies, like I belong to a number of Facebook groups that talk about Chinese medicine case studies, it is so common to read the case studies. And what I see is they list all of these Western medicine indications Western medicine says this and that and and blah, blah. And it's extremely unusual in those Facebook forums. And with the students that I taught when I was teaching in Portland and a lot of students that I continue to talk to because I do have a small mentorship that I teach, their first instinct is to describe everything based on Western medicine. And it's hard because in the clinic, your patients are coming in and they're telling you, oh, well, I have this blah, blah, Mm -hmm. Western medicine diagnosis, and then your mind immediately goes to that. But in point of fact, it's not Chinese medicine. You have to train yourself not to do that. You have to train yourself to take whatever people are saying in those Western terms. Of course you do. Kind of hold it lightly to the side. What does that mean in Chinese medicine terms? Now, I want to come back to something for just a moment. Because you were doing this thesis, ostensibly saying that the integration of Chinese and Western medicine wasn't going so well. Well, in China, they're very keen on how great Zhongxi Jiehe is, and you were not optimistic about where the Chinese medicine was going on its own. How was that received over there? Well, I mean, I got my postdoc thesis passed, and you can still go online if you text my Chinese name. And there was an article that was, I had an interview in China, and they recorded it and then posted it online. So I wound up being a little bit famous in China because it was very well received and a lot of people read it at the time. And it talked about a lot of the issues that I described in my thesis. That's interesting. I'm a little surprised that it would be well received because it goes counter to the narrative. It goes counter to the narrative, but the narrative is the official whitewashing. And there's a lot of people in China who are really, really good Chinese medicine doctors. They're fewer and further between now. And most of them exist outside academia. Not all, but 
many of the best doctors just didn't get that academic training and are coming out of these lineages or some other way of figuring out Chinese medicine that goes beyond the westernization of the medicine. And I know that there's going to be a little bit of flack about this because people are going to go, oh, well, you know, Western medicine, rah, rah. And Western medicine has a lot of good things about it, but it's a way of looking at the world that is very limited and limiting. And it is not the same underlying way of thinking about the world and about your patients as Chinese medicine. And I just see that that Chinese medicine ability to analyze a patient and what's going on in the patient is lost. And it has to do with a lot of recent history. It has to do with misunderstandings of what Chinese medicine really is. And it has to do with the fact that the transmission of Chinese medicine has become institutionalized in a way that a kind of higher level transmission is not possible. One of the things that I tell my students all the time is that Chinese medicine is not fully rational. And I'm not saying anything negative about it. I'm not saying that it's irrational by any means. But there's a whole aspect of Chinese medicine that is is nonverbal and cannot be verbalized. And in part, it's because when you do Chinese medicine properly, at least what I consider properly, you need to train yourself to perceive and to think in different ways than the average person does. I really believe that the best practitioners of Chinese medicine have some sort of meditative Tai Chi martial arts practice. And note, I didn't say yoga. And the reason for that is that I don't know much about yoga, and I cannot speak to how it enables you to expand your perceptions. Most of my experience with the expansion of perceptions has been in the field of sitting meditation and Tai Chi martial arts. And if you've ever done that, you know that you get these interesting sensations. And as you practice mindfulness, that it enables you to put aside certain ways of thinking about the world and to focus more on the present moment and less about the past and the future. And by focusing on the present moment, it gives you a much clearer sense in clinic about what you're actually seeing in the patient, because the patient is not their history. Their history has brought them to that point. But what you're seeing in clinic is the patient as they are right now. And that is what we should be treating. Because if we're treating patient's history, maybe that's not exactly what's going on right now. Well, it seems to me there's, as I think about it in my work and in my practice, that there's an element of understanding that comes from, I'm going to call it knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's the experience that I've had. It's a distilled experience that I've had over time, which gets a little better over the course of, of using it. But there's also this element, I'm going to call it presence in the moment, where there is experience, and I'm going to call it sensate experience. It's not really in your head yet. It's not in your brain or your thinking process in any kind of mapped out way yet. It's more about a moment of encounter. Well, my argument is that moment of encounter cannot be rationalized. 
Yes, and it cannot be rationalized because that requires that it goes into language and language because of... Language is limiting. Exactly. The limitations of language have to put certain things in and certain things out. After we've gone through the experience, it's perfectly possible to verbalize. Yes, after we've been through the experience. But in the moment, if you verbalize it, it changes things. Yes. Yes, it's a very curious little tightrope. It has to do partly with the whole problem of the way that epistemology is set up East and West. In the West, we have this system where we have things that are true, Mm. and if this is true, then that is not true. And so there is this juxtaposition set up of what is true and therefore valued and what is not true and therefore needs to be discounted. And we see that rampant in our society and trying actually to take over Chinese medicine because Chinese medicine is not focused on truth in the same way. Chinese medicine is not black and white. Chinese medicine is relative and it focuses on the intersections between things, that space where two things come together and interact. And in Chinese medicine, we talk about yin-yang theory. Well, what is yin-yang theory? Everybody says, oh, well, this is yin and that is yang. And that's frankly not even true. Because even in the classics, they talk about how yin and yang have name, but no form. They're a mental construct. And the important part of yin-yang theory is once you've identified these two things which interact, is that point of intersection. Because that is where transformation and movement happens. And so that's where the medicine lives, not in yin or yang. It's this interaction and how they fit together to create, maintain, sustain an entity for however long it can. And, you know, and when they separate in Chinese medicine, we say they die. Like whatever it is, it, it dissipates, it dies. And that's a very different way of looking at things, because when you're looking at things in relationship, when you are looking at the articulation of two things coming together as a unit to create whatever entity you are looking at, at whatever level you are looking at it, you can't have an absolute. It doesn't make any sense. And so you have to talk about, well, in this situation, it depends on Whatever. In that situation, it depends on whatever. And you have to look at things more as a system than as a solid something. But the way we think about things in the West is a thingness. And it partly has to do with grammar. When English we talk, we use the verb to be a lot. Well, the verb to be, in point of fact, is an equal sign. Well, that is means that this and A are equal in some ways. And so when you say this is yin or this is yang, all of a sudden people lock it down. Okay, well, women are yin and men are yang. And there's this equal sign. And so all of a sudden, what should have been a way of perceiving aspects of an entity now becomes separate in and of itself. And it changes the way that you understand what's going on. And then when you introduce other things like the five element theory, for example. Well, what is the five element theory? It's not wood, fire, earth, metal, water. But those are metaphors, abstract ideas that help people to understand qualities which can then be 
seen as making up an entire system, which are transferable between systems. And if you're talking about them in the context of movement, they express the qualities of movement and how those qualities of movement maintain a system. And then you just have to learn to recognize that something is wood, it has these qualities, but these qualities are not true in the sense that Western medicine thinks about them. They're true in the sense that there are similar qualities that people can be taught to perceive and that you can then utilize to understand how to rebalance the system if it's out and how to even recognize where the system is out. So you talk about the qualities of wood. Well, the earliest description of the qualities of wood were such that it had this spiral motion. And how do you perceive that? And then it comes back down to this whole business of learning to perceive in ways that most people don't even think about. Yes. I want to come back to that. I want to come back to this perception piece. Because earlier in this conversation, we were talking about the language of Chinese medicine, in, in essence, looks at the world very differently than the language of Western medicine. It does, very different. In fact, I would dare say that to become a Chinese medicine practitioner, we have to become bilingually fluent. And I'm not talking about learning Chinese. I'm talking about fluency in being able to think about and utilize the principles of Chinese medicine within its own sphere. Within the context of Chinese medicine, yes. and not within the context or not with the explanation of Western medicine. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Well, I think that could come later. I think there might be a place for that, but it's like first you have to have your Chinese medicine down pat, be able to speak about it, think about it, work it from within that frame. Now, later, if you want to connect those two things up, okay, fine. But to bring in the Western medicine before you're facile in the Chinese medicine thinking, again, you don't need to know Chinese, you need to know Chinese medicine. But it's like, at least my sense of it, in my experience as a practitioner, the better I get at just thinking in those Chinese terms, looking at not wood, like, oh, they're wood, like they're Aries or whatever, right? This equals that, and you nail it down. Oh, good, I nailed it down. This is that thing. But instead of nailing it down, 
staying with a sense of the movement that's in it. Like you were saying, the quality. Can I attend to the quality that's in it? And all you got to do is look at the name, you know, Wuxing, the five movements to realize we aren't talking about things here. Well, but that gets lost in translation. And originally Wuxing was actually Wutai, which Wutai. meant literally the five elements or the five components. So it did start out with a much more concrete understanding, which fairly quickly morphed into the five phases. Which Tsai is this? Jing Tsai de Tsai? No, it's like Tsai Liao. Tsai Liao. Sort of that ingredients. Oh. It's more of a thingness there. Okay. Or Mu Tsai. Mm-hmm. Like, an, yeah, ingredient. Yeah. Okay. But unless you understand that these are actually pointing to perceptions that give you an understanding of principle and qualities that are either too strong or too weak, then it's very hard to do Chinese medicine. Like, what does it mean when you say this person has too much wood? And how does that relate to the liver as wood? What are the qualities that they have in common? And how do you as a practitioner actually go about and see, is it enough? Is it too much, too little? And if it's either too much or too little, how do I address it? Based on those perceptions and based on the accumulated experience of generations of Chinese medicine practitioners who wrote down the stuff that worked and left it behind for people to use if they could only understand and perceive in the same way, then they really felt that this stuff worked. And it behooves each generation to relearn this stuff in a way that is true to how people understood it and then be able to take it and adapt it to whatever time they're living in. Like, we're not going to get away from Western medicine. And it's not even that Western medicine is bad per se, but if we continue to try and slide Chinese medicine into the principles of Western medicine, we're going to lose Chinese medicine. It's not possible for Chinese medicine to continue in that environment because Chinese medicine doesn't treat the body in the same way as Western medicine does. It doesn't even understand the body in the same way. And so every time you come up with a Western explanation of why something is, it's not actually true according to Western medicine because that then is a confusion between a vehicle of manifestation and the manifestation itself without the understanding that the vehicle of manifestation may not even be the only vehicle. The, maybe there's other vehicles that can result in the same manifestation that we're perceiving in the moment, or it may be that there are more elements in that. But trying mm -hmm. to narrow it down to something which is true, it doesn't make any sense. And if you look at the names of Chinese medicine diseases, the names of Chinese medicine diseases, as they were originally understood, were mostly descriptions of the failure in the proper qi dynamic. My favorite example is this business of Huolan, which is sudden turmoil. Mm -hmm. And Huolan, in, when the Protestants came, it was mostly Protestants. They set up hospitals in China and they translated. I guess the Catholics were partly involved there too. 
the Christians came to China and they started learning Chinese medicine and they started translating all of these works. They translated them in terms that they understood. And so Huolan was translated literally as cholera, which nails it down to a manifestation of Huolan. One manifestation, that's a Western disease. That's a Western disease. Yeah. And you see that a lot in the earlier transmissions or the translations of Chinese medicine. Hearing something like Huolan, I mean, that could be all kinds of things that suddenly go topsy-turvy. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, the definition of Huolan, which I translate as sudden turmoil, is simultaneous vomiting and diarrhea, of which cholera is one manifestation. But you can have stomach flus that have the same, where you have sudden vomiting and diarrhea at the same time. And what it is, according to the original description, is that it's a blockage in the middle jowl. So that when you put something in, it just comes right back out, and it cannot hold anything in because there's a blockage in the middle jowl. I mean, you can even have sudden turmoil in something like a kidney infection where all of a sudden your kidneys are shutting down and then your whole body, stop, the middle jowl just stops moving and you've got vomiting and diarrhea at the same time. Does that mean that you're going to treat them the same? Absolutely not. But you're still having that same issue, that it's still a blockage in the middle jowl. Now you have to figure out what to do about that blockage. You mentioned a moment ago the there's an important aspect. You were talking about the wood element and looking at it and thinking, is there excess or is there deficiency? And just how important it is to be able to be clear for yourself in the moment. Am I looking at excess? Am I looking at deficiency? This to me is one of the incredible things about Chinese medicine is we have this kind of rubric to go about looking at things. It sounds simple. Oh, you should be able to look and see if it's excess or deficient. And yet, I find that to be one of my biggest challenges in clinic. Am I actually looking at excess or am I actually looking at deficiency? This Huolan, where you've got something with the middle jowl going on, there's a blockage. And down below, you've got a deficiency, things are falling out. Up above, you've got an excess, there's a blockage, things are coming up. Sometimes it's a mixed pattern. Well, one of the things about being in clinic is being in clinic is partly because you need to train your perceptions. Mm. And then you have to understand in clinic too that you have all of these great theories, but these theories apply at all levels. So you can take these theories and you can look at this person and say that in general, this person is wood deficient. What does that mean? Or you can say that this person's liver is deficient as an organ, but you have to be able to go macroscopic as well as, as go down through the different levels and be able to see where is this person deficient or excess. Because the person, you know, a wood deficient person is not necessarily liver deficient. Maybe that wood deficiency is a product of something else. Or maybe you're looking at the function of, say, the eyes, or maybe that's not such a good idea, but the function of something else in the body. Why is the eyes not a good example? Well, because it's wood anyways. I was trying to think of an example that was not necessarily wood. So think about the function of the nose. Mm. So where do the qualities of wood manifest in the nose? And how do you know whether there's a wood issue involved with the nose? Because it's very possible. 
What would that look like? It's not uncommon for gallbladder damp heat to manifest in the nose. And what kind of manifestation? Are we looking at some kind of a sinus issue, an allergy, rhinitis? Yeah, it's typically sinusitis. Mm -hmm. But you need to be able to slide from these high resolution to low resolution. And then to be able to apply different filters. Because a lot of these theories in Chinese medicine act more like filters than truth. They're really just these mental constructs that are either useful or non-useful. And if you read in ancient Chinese philosophy, a lot of the discussion they had was not so much about truth, because in ancient Chinese philosophy, the ultimate truth was, of course, the Tao, which is inexplicable, because it goes beyond our ability to perceive, let alone explain verbally. And so, because everything else was relative, then you had to look at things based on that part of things. And so nothing was ever true because it was always dependent on, well, what angle and magnification are you looking at it from? But it could be, I'm going to call it true enough that you can get a handle on what's going on for somebody. Absolutely. But it was not absolute truth, which is where it differs from Western thought. Because what they really talked about was, is it useful? And if it's useful, then it's true enough in this situation for this person, for this patient. At this moment. At this moment. If we go back to the qualities of Chinese medicine, one of the things that I've been thinking about too, well, these different qualities of Chinese medicine, what about the quality of earth? You know, what does that really give us? And what that gives us is it gives us a position. It gives us a focus. And if you look at how the earth is understood, the human being is earth between when the context of heaven and earth. So the physical body is earth. And so it gives us a reference point. And by giving us a reference point, we're able to look at the other four directions and say, oh, well, from this reference point, that's north, that's south, that's east, that's west. And then each of these has different qualities. And that same kind of logic applies when you're looking at say, the channels, because they all have earth points. When I translate the term E, which many people translate as intent. Mm -hmm. Or significance. Yeah, I mean, there's different ways of translating it, but I like to translate it in part as focus. Mm -hmm. Because you see when earth element is out, your focus gets stuck. It's like this dampness. It's like a sticky tongue of a frog gets stuck on something and just can't seem to let go. And that's a very damp quality. But it's also from the structure of the character, the sound of the heart. They have the heart radical at the bottom and then the, the character for sound, especially music, on the top, which many people translate not just as intention, but sometimes even thought. And there are theories in Chinese medicine where you need to have this in order to initiate thoughts in the heart. So it moves from the spleen to the heart and then starts that kind of process. But the idea that it's also the sound of the heart then brings it back down to the whole idea of resonance and the use of sound in addressing whatever. 
And so all of this stuff is there in the theory if you care to look at it and unpack it. But you're not going to see it from a Western perspective because each of these is very separate. And the other thing about Chinese medicine that makes it very different from the Western system is the mental constructs, the theories that are used to talk about Chinese medicine are theories which are pretty much universal and can be applied in any field at any level with certain differing levels of utility and accuracy. I have heard Chinese medicine as a form of philosophy and action. I would not disagree with that. Yeah, because we can take some of these ideas, Wuxing in particular, right? You can apply it to family harmony. You can apply it to governments. You can apply it to how you run your business. You can apply it to all kinds of things because mm -hmm. we're looking at natural cycles of unfolding. And how could it possibly help the human body and spirit if it wasn't also completely tied in with the rest of the way that nature works? How could it possibly be separate? I agree with you there. But at the same time, I just want to mention that as humans, we have a whole system of perceiving based on the senses that we're born with and that we cultivate over the course of our life. And the nature of those senses and the nature of the cultural constructs around us lead us to understand the world in specific ways, which in China, they then took and applied to everything to create this universal idea of how the world is, depending on what level you're looking at. So you start with the Tao, and then the Tao comes out, and it's chaotic, and then it splits into two, and you have the yin-yang, and then it splits again and again, and then you have five elements, and then you know you have eight, and all of these different levels of understanding and integration. Now, some of them have been lost. Nobody really knows well how to use, say, the eight trigrams, because nobody really studies the I Ching. And what is the I Ching? It's a book that talks about, well, if we have three layers of yin and yang, which are all mixed up, what does that mean as far as dynamic movement and qualities are concerned? And because people just don't study the I Ching and they don't understand what these things are talking about, then that whole system has been pretty much lost. It's much more difficult to grasp a hold of than even the five elements. But again, you were looking at different models, fluid models, mm -hmm. that as you were saying, help us to zoom in and zoom out. We can take it out to a more macroscopic view we can bring it down into a more microscopic view and see different things at each of those levels. Of course. You can take Chinese medicine and the theories of Chinese medicine, five elements for five phases, for example, and you can apply it to the actions of, say, a cell. What actions of a cell correspond to the qualities that we see in the five phases? The expansion and the contraction and the movement up and down and those kinds of things. And are they useful or not, if you understand that? I have heard more than one person say that Chinese medicine is not about right and wrong. Even though often in our clinics, we're thinking, did I get it right or am I wrong? It's very easy to, to land in that place. But rather than that focus of right or wrong, the question is, is this being helpful? And if so, how is it helpful? I think that's a much, much better way of looking at it. I think so too. 
Because if you start thinking about right and wrong, all of a sudden you're applying a value judgment. Well, it starts getting moralistic real quickly. And that value judgment, frankly, I don't think is helpful. Why is it not helpful? I think because it incites emotions. And once you incite emotions into clinical diagnostics, it then takes you out of that space that you need to hold where you're not being pushed in one direction or another. There's lots of people in our society where if they're right, yay, awesome, I'm right, and it excites a certain happiness, whatever. Whereas if they're wrong, then they're all depressed and it's like, oh God, I'm wrong or I'm not worth anything or blah, blah. But if you think about rather than am I right or wrong, was this helpful in this situation? Is there something that I could have done that was more helpful? It takes it out of the arena of judgment. And thus out of the realm of emotion. Yeah. One of the things that I was really hoping that we would get to, and I'm going to use this as a segue to talk about it is the whole idea of the relationship between space and spirit. Oh, now that's interesting. In Chinese philosophy, it starts in the Tao Te Ching in chapter 6. It talks about the valley spirit. What is the valley spirit? The valley spirit is a structure, the valley, with a space in it that contains spirit. And when you talk about the cosmos, the Chinese always felt that the spirits of the cosmos lived within the spaces in the cosmos. So there's this idea in Chinese medicine that the infusion of spirit exists within the spaces in the body, even if we're not seeing those spaces because all we see is the physical body. But spirit infuses the spaces in the body in such a way that everything in the body is considered to be alive and have a certain sentience, and therefore you can communicate with it. And that's something very, very different than Western medicine. On Net of Knowledge, I gave a lecture a couple of months ago on the valley spirit, space, and emptiness, and how that also applied to the acupuncture channels, because that's the love of my life. Is I'm very much into, into acupuncture practice. And if those spaces become blocked, then the acupuncture channels are not functioning properly, because they're not supposed to be blocked. They're supposed to be open and flowing. And so things go wrong when they do get blocked. And that's just one way of looking at it. Another way of thinking about space is that the space that you hold for your patient when they come in, and that space needs to be empty. And it needs to not have your judgment, the judgment of the practitioner in it. So some person off the street comes in and they haven't had a bath in six months and their hair is all whatever it is and they're just barely holding on. Are you able to be there for that person without going, oh, yuck, this person smells or... That would be hard. That would be really difficult. It would be very hard. But as a practitioner, you need to start to train yourself to be able to do that. That's an extreme example. And... I don't know that there's that many people out there that do treat a lot of people that are that far down. But even somebody comes in as a patient, and then all of a sudden they're talking to you about their story of their illness or their story of what has happened in their life to lead them to this situation or just because they want to vent. 
can you hold space for that patient as they're describing all of this and not get entangled in it so that you have enough space to be able to see without your nose pressed right up against their glass? Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Here's another place where I think space is vitally, vitally important. And that is within ourselves because patients come in and they want help and they want something to be different. Mm -hmm. And most of us are in business to help them have their life be different. That's a lot of pressure because on one hand, yes, I get it. Be empty, be open to what's there, be willing to be led, see what those spaces have to say, have space for that space, if you will. And yet at the same time, there's a kind of a contractual agreement that we have as humans in the 21st century that I'm here to help you and I'm going to do something about it. And sometimes our desire, I know for me, my own desire to help somebody can very much get in the way of helping them. Absolutely. I see that in myself more often than I'd like to. It's a constant practice. But I find I get better results if I just go into this particular mind space and just start seeing, okay, where are the blockages, what needs to be addressed, and try and leave myself out as much as possible. As soon as I start to inject myself into the treatment, it tends to go less well than I want it to. Yes. So this leads me to the question of then just who is doing this treatment that we're talking about. I think that treatments are the coming together of the two individuals involved. The practitioner with their wealth of knowledge and experience and perception that they bring into the moment, and the patient with all that they're bringing into the moment, and then the interaction between the two. So once again, it's that place where it's coming together, that space right there where it's the possibility for transformation and movement lies. And if you can be in that space without stirring the pot on one side or the other, then you're going to get fairly good treatments. If you cannot, either because the practitioner 
is stirring the pot on their side or the patient is stirring the pot on their side, then your treatments are not going to be as successful. And how do you do that is going to be very dependent on the practitioner themselves. Because in essence, if I'm understanding this correctly, Brenda, our intention to help people can get in the way of us helping people. Absolutely. Well, think about it. Generate the feeling I really need to help somebody in your mind right now and sit with it for just a second. <laughs> yeah. How does it change your energies? Everything tightens up. Everything tightens up. And there's this directionality to your energies that often is not helpful in clinic because you need to bring the person that you are treating to the point where they're relaxed enough that even they're not adding stuff to the pot to kind of stir it up. That's why it's always really good to allow the patient to kind of drop into that aculand, that place of relaxation. I mean, I love it when my patients fall asleep because that means their conscious mind is shut off. And when their conscious mind is shut off, they're not stirring the pot. And all of a sudden, the body and its own healing mechanisms has the ability to step in and do what it needs to do in that moment. So we kind of have to do not doing. It's all about this whole way or not a do, not doing. It requires presence and it requires witnessing because we're dealing with these subtle energies. But this idea that you have to do something, you have to be there, is a really tricky one because we all do it and we all want to do it. I mean, a lot of us, it's why we got into medicine in the first place is that, oh, yes, I'm going to help people. I'm going to, it's part of our personality. And so, how do you help people without bringing up that energy that tightens you up and is so focused? that it kind of cuts like a knife into the other person. Yes. Well, and it narrows the perception. It dramatically narrows perception. Yeah. So Chinese medicine, from my perspective, will never be able to be a if-this-then-that treatment kind of disease at its highest levels. And that doesn't mean that you can't start there. And that you won't be there for a while because there's lots of experiential medicine that has been recorded in Chinese medicine history and that you yourself will gain as a practitioner where, oh yeah, I know in this case I use this point or I use this set of herbs, this formula, and I'm going to get good results. And so in that way, it can be a little mechanical. But you need to be able to go beyond that and start to really work from the principles of Chinese medicine to be able to address anybody that comes in your, in your door and not just like this narrow set of patients that I really know how to address. And it's not to say that it's wrong to do that, but Chinese medicine was much more a system of medicine that could be applied anywhere. And Chinese medicine, I mean, people didn't start specializing until a little later on in the medical field, starting the first specialized texts started appearing in the Song Dynasty, although I'm pretty sure that there were specialized doctors before then. But the first specialized texts, that's when they first started to appear. It requires a very, very different way of thinking about the world and a different way of actually connecting to the world. 
because you cannot be in your rational mind all the time. And you have to be able to understand the body as a system, as a whole. Like, why is it that I can use this point over on the toe and it affects, I don't know, the, the shoulder or the head or something like that? What are those principles trying to tell you, trying to teach you? And then you get into some of the other acupuncture systems where they have, you know, for example, Master Tong talks about this area of the body is more related to, say, liver or wood or something like that. And this area of the body is more related to metal or, I mean, how is it that that stuff works? You know, to this day, I don't think that Western medicine has an explanation for how these maps of the body work. Maps of the body. I think that's a very good description of what we're dealing with here. And, and you know, when I think of what you were just talking about, why is it that a point on the toe helps the head or why this area here resonates with liver or metal? I often think about resonance. We talk about resonance. We talk about holographic ways that the body's put together. And that's the way that I have thought about it up until about three minutes ago. <laughs> the influence of speaking with you that maybe there is something else here that I don't have words for yet, but if I attend to it, maybe it will teach me something. That's true. And to get back to our topic about Eastern and Western philosophies is that these things are not really in the purview of Western medicine because they don't see them in the same way. And they're not really in the purview of the human domain. Well, with quantum stuff, they're starting to be more, and they're starting to be more research into, say, sound therapies and the understanding of resonance in the body. But that resonance that they talk about tends to be a little less focused than it is in Chinese medicine. And because that is not there in Western medicine, they're not going to research it in the way that's going to give Western medicine and the Western way of thinking a clear understanding of why and how it works. Because they're busy researching other stuff that fits within their pre-existing models of the world. It gets into the whole idea, well, when we do research on Chinese medicine, what are we really doing? There's not very many people out there who are actually researching Chinese medicine. Most of the people, when they research, they're actually using Chinese medicine as their lab rat, and then using the models of Western medicine to research. And how does that benefit Chinese medicine as the medicine itself? It doesn't. It makes Western medicine richer in its understanding, or it gives them an excuse to poo-poo Chinese medicine. They did this big study on large intestine 11 as a point that would help to reduce blood pressure. And they did like 10,000 patients. And they discovered that, well, large intestine 11 doesn't reduce blood pressure. And it's like, um, duh. <laughs> you know, because large intestine 11, it's not like you push a button here and this is like the lowering blood pressure point and everything will be all good after we do large intestine 11 because it's not going to research it as an integrated system when what it sees are these bits and pieces and hasn't figured out a model to integrate these bits and pieces into the larger picture. And therefore, it's not able to use abstract 
thought to integrate the bits and pieces into an actual coherent picture, which is how Chinese medicine partly works. Chinese medicine requires that you have the ability to integrate bits and pieces and see them as a whole while still also seeing the bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. It's not one or the other. It has to be both. Well, it's both and. It requires the use of both sides of your brain, the abstract and the rational. Well, and we're so used to in our Western way of thinking that this does that. Earlier in the conversation, you were talking about the equal sign. This is that. And we've grown up in this culture. We have the language of this culture that's never going to go away from our minds. That's part of our mother tongue, so to speak, which is why I think it is helpful, as I said earlier, that as we work with Chinese medicine, that we think about it in its own terms. My personal view is that if we don't, we'll lose the medicine. Now, is it that we lose the medicine because we can't practice it with a sort of competency, or is it that we lose it because there are aspects that can be taken into the Western world? I mean, there's things out there now like dry needling, and I know a bunch of chiropractors in my area, they'll do some ear needles to stop smoking and that kind of thing. It's very, very popular in this area. I think there are elements of acupuncture. Yeah, but acupuncture is not Chinese medicine. Acupuncture is a tool developed under the auspices of Chinese medicine theory in order to manipulate the body. But of itself, all it is is a technique. It's a tool. You need to have the overarching theories, ontology and epistemology of how they thought about the world and how they thought about the body in order to create those tools. If Western medicine and Western thought had had these theories, maybe they might have developed acupuncture, but they didn't. And so what they're doing is they're taking the tools of Chinese medicine developed under a totally different way of thinking of the world and the body and drawing them into their system because guess what? It works. They work. They're useful. It was kind of funny two, three years ago when that woman in China won the Nobel Prize for having quote unquote discovered Qinghao, Artemisius. Is it Artemisius? Anyways, that drug that they use for malaria. Yes. And she got the Nobel Prize. Yes. And everybody's touting, oh, look how amazing Chinese medicine is. Well, that's nonsense. That's not Chinese medicine at all. That's an herb which is used in Chinese medicine for the treatment of malaria, but is not in and of itself Chinese medicine. It's just a tool that you use that had that effect. And when she researched it, she didn't use Chinese medicine principles. She just said, oh, look, there's Chinese medicine. They use that herb. Let's figure out what it's doing. And all of the research came out of the Western medicine model. And so how is that Chinese medicine? So I very much appreciate your distinction here that something like acupuncture, it's a tool. Are we driving it with our Western medicine thinking, or are we driving it with our Chinese medicine thinking? Well, and that's the problem that I see is that there's a great deal of research done using the Western model to investigate Chinese medicine, but there's not hardly any that goes the other way around. And as soon as you stop 
researching and investigating and thinking about things, you remove the heart. And all you're left with is a bunch of bits and pieces. It's like you put cultures that are extinct into a museum. And oh yeah, it's all cool stuff. But that culture no longer exists. And I worry that Chinese medicine is going down that same path. Because who's investigating Chinese medicine from the point of view of Chinese medicine? Well, I suspect many of us in our clinics, working away, trying to figure these principles out, seeing how it goes with our patients. I think a lot of practitioners are doing that, but they're doing it in the best live lab we have, our clinic space. It's where Chinese medicine lives. It doesn't really live on paper. And all of these books that are written, doesn't matter how old they are, they're just what somebody thought and found useful. And so they wrote them all down. But they don't become ours until they're so deep into our spirit and our bones that they just come out. And that doesn't happen unless you have that ontology and epistemology that supports it. If you're always coming at it as a foreign language, which that's another way of talking about what I see in Chinese medicine, then you're never really going to understand that in Eskimo, they have, I don't know, 11 different kinds of snow. In the Pacific Northwest, we have 15 kinds of rain. Exactly. Because in those areas, your perceptions are trained to see the difference in each of those different kinds of snow or, or rain or, or whatever. And so your mind becomes tuned to that. And that enables a differing kind of perception. And it doesn't mean that what you're looking at is different, but now you have a bigger and different context than you had before. And you have ways of speaking out thing, of things with specificity that people whose understanding is not as sophisticated as that can't even begin to comprehend because they don't even see the differences. They don't even see that, okay, this kind of snow is really good for making igloos. And that kind of snow is sticky and slushy and it will get in your boots and cause problems. I mean, they just don't see that. They just see this generic snow. Or in the case of the Pacific Northwest, drizzle and pouring rain. And or the American Midwest, the different kinds of humidity we have. You run into this problem all the time. Like one of the best examples that I can think of is pain. Oh, yes. We have a dearth of words to describe pain. I put the acupuncture needle in. Oh, that's painful. That hurts. Well, does it really hurt or is it just an uncomfortable feeling? Yes, I often ask my patients, what kind of hurt is it? Exactly. It's important in Chinese medicine to be able to distinguish between the different kinds. Like, is there a traveling sensation? Does it feel heavy? Does it feel hot? Does it feel, you know, whatever it feels? Or is it just sharp and owie? Yes. And how long does it last? And there's a lot of other words in English that are also often not really, they're just not good enough for the use that we put them to. We just kind of lump all kinds of meaning into one word, and then nobody's really clear on what people are talking about. Okay, so our job as Chinese medicine practitioners, I want to see if I can just recap this here, because we've covered a lot. But it sounds like, for one, 
there is something about our perception that we need to attend to. Yes. And we need to cultivate. And there's this element of looking to be useful over looking to be right. And then there's also this place, and this is one I dance with in clinic all the time, of being present enough to be able to gather some of the different information that at the different levels that we've been talking about, have an intention to be helpful, but not have that intention get in the way. Puts a lot of pressure on a patient when the practitioner needs for them to get better. And it also muddies our own vision. And then there's also the patient side of whatever they bring, but that's for the patient to have and and for us to witness, but not necessarily engage to such a degree that it stirs the emotions. Another great point that you brought up, when the emotions get too stirred, it's much harder to perceive. It's a lot harder to perceive. And then there's also the problem, and I'm pretty sure everybody's had these kinds of patients where they come in and they have XYZ problem and you treat them, they just don't get better. And you look at them and you realize they don't actually want to get better. Well, yes. I mean, there are those situations. I've had this conversation with other people on the podcast. Maybe you've got someone who's a construction worker. They've injured themselves on the job. And man, if they get better, it means they got to go back to that job that could injure them even worse. It's going to be hard to want to get better. Or somebody is sick and it's become part of who they identify with. That as well. So they go through the motions of going to all of these different doctors, but at the end of the day, they're still kind of wedded to their identity as being sick. Well, identity and medicine is probably a topic for another day, but it's not the topic of today, but we could pick that up another time. But I mean, that's where they are stirring the pot. Yes. So maybe some attentiveness to, is the pot being stirred? Who's stirring it? Could be helpful. Anything else that you'd like to share with us before we say goodbye for today? Practice mindfulness. Practice meditation. If you can, do energetic exercises like Tai Chi or Qigong. Spend time out in nature. And all of those things will help to ground you and bring you to a place where your way of thinking about being in the world And your actual presence in the world will begin to shift more towards how Chinese medicine was meant to be understood. Part of the reason I say that is I truly believe that the ancients who wrote down the Chinese medicine that we practice were practitioners, that they practiced things like Qigong and Taiji and and did those kinds of things. They had a much closer relationship to nature. And through those kinds of things, their perceptions were changed. How they thought about things changed, partly because they were able to let go of some of the thoughts which were holding them back, and partly because as your own energetic level increases, your own spiritual level increases, your ability to see things and understand them changes as well. I think that a lot of Chinese philosophy was top-down, that you started with an experience and then you translated that experience back down through the rational mind, which is a tool and an artifact of being a human being in order to be able to express it to other people, to think about it yourself. And it was not 
developed in the same way that Western medicine relies on rationalization and theories and testing in the same way. So that you have this bottom up where they look at all the minutiae and try and figure out theories, and then this top down where they see this bigger picture. And then they look down and start splitting it out. Which is why the theories of Chinese medicine tend to be more about overarching principles, overarching understandings of motion and quality. And perhaps even why Chinese medicine is much more focused on life and moving processes than it is about the details which carry that life or the vehicle within which life itself manifests. And you get a very different way of looking at the world when you're looking at it from the top down than when you're looking at it from the bottom up. And it's helpful to be able to look at both. It's helpful to be able to look at both. And I think it's part of what it means to be a human being. TND, Jan. One last thing, because I want, really wanted to talk about this and I don't want to forget it, is the whole problem of subjectivity. And that is a problem because in the West, subjectivity is poo-pooed. It's not as good as rationalism and rational thought. But in Chinese medicine, subjectivity has a very important place, both on the part of the practitioner and the part of the patient. If you listen to what the patient is saying in their description of their experience of the symptoms, it gives you a much better idea of what's going on in the relationships in their and in their being and in what's happening pathologically in the qualities that are sustaining them as a living entity and being. Thank you. That is something I feel like I can take into my clinic as an inquiry. I love taking inquiries into the clinic. That I, that I can take into the clinic. And maybe we'll come back for a longer discussion on that because I do have questions about subjectivity and perception and belief. All right. So we can circle back another day. Once again, Michael, it has been fun. Yes. I quite enjoy speaking with you. I come away from my conversations with Brenda having a bit more respect for how much of Chinese medicine I don't understand because there are always a few moments in the conversation where I realize that I've held too narrow of a view and I've indulged in the poetic beauty of the five phases or the six chi, but I haven't lived more fully into them in ways that help to see their influence, not just in clinic, but throughout the unfolding of my relationships outside of clinic or in how I think about and run my business for that matter. Sometimes I fail to see more deeply into how our medicine might work because the guardrails of my imagination are crafted from living in the modern age. So it's good to have these conversations and reminders to dare a larger view. I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, 
That's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.